I'm so glad this morning that no one asked me what the sermon is about. Because it's really hard for me to say in a simple statement what the sermon's going to be about. And that's a bad sign if you're a preacher. Uh, I've had opportunity to teach preaching classes in different places, in different countries. And that's one simple thing. If you can't tell us what it's all about in one statement, in one sentence, you're not ready. So maybe we should close the service in prayer. Because... In one simple sentence, I, I don't think I could tell you what the sermon's about because it's about so many things. There are so many things going on. If we were to take the passage we're going to look at and make refrigerator magnets out of all the different words involved, you could maybe arrange them this way. Disturbing, naked, Jewish exorcists doing miracles and book burning. And I'm not even making that up. Those are some of the words in Acts chapter 19, which is going to be our passage. So if you have a Bible, you can find Acts 19. The sermon won't be about disturbing naked Jewish exorcists doing miracles and book burning. But all of those concepts, all of those words are in our passage. And there's so much happening. But in all seriousness, it, it will be interesting. But I do know what it's all about. It's all about the same thing that's emphasized so often in the book of Acts. It's all about the progress of the gospel. No, let me back up. It's about the proclamation of the good news of salvation in Christ. And there will be some who find it to be the good news that it is. Others might be interested in hearing more. And others want to start a riot over it because they're so upset. And so that's what we do see in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is all about... First century early church history, Jesus, Jesus commissioned his apostles to take the gospel and to keep proclaiming it and keep proclaiming it and have it expand ultimately to Rome, ultimately around the whole world. And so we're watching that happen is what we're watching. And this chapter will be no different, although there will be some pretty interesting things that we haven't seen before when it comes to positive reception as well as hostility against it. So I think we have 41 verses. Uh, Our pattern has seemed to be lately. We're going to try to do a whole chapter when we can. I'll try to do that this morning. A lot of action, a lot of interesting things. Have I said it's interesting? I think I've said it's interesting. It will be interesting. Watching the gospel do what only the gospel does. Hope you're ready. I hope you found Acts 19. It's going to be in Ephesus. And Ephesus is actually important because in Ephesus, in the first century, you have one of the seven wonders of the first century world. You have this temple to Artemis or Diana, and it was literally one of the seven wonders of the world. It's the capital of this Roman province in Asia, today's Turkey, uh, one of the largest cities in the first century world. It's a significant place. It's a significant hub of commerce. It's where you go for culture. It's where you go for Diana worship. Um, it's quite the place, first century Ephesus. Here we go. First thing we're going to see, we're going to see the conversion of, I'm going to call them tweeners. And you're thinking, the conversion of tweeners, I'll explain. Let's go ahead and do it. Acts 19.1. Told you it was going to be interesting. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, we learned about Apollos in chapter 18. He was a tweener too, by the way. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples... And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. They're like Apollos in chapter 18 because Apollos knew a lot. He knew up until John the Baptist, but he didn't know the rest of the story about Jesus. He knew about Jesus coming, but he was living uh, in, in what one theologian called a time warp, a, a redemptive historical time warp, right? He knew a lot of the things that he needed to know. John the Baptist preached repentance, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is about ready to arrive. John the Baptist was the one who came before Jesus, getting the people ready. His baptism was a baptism symbolizing repentance. We're not ready for the king. We need to be ready for the king. And so we're going to be baptized, and it's symbolic of repentance, so that we're saying, we're ready now. But some people, that's all they heard. And they knew there was a Jesus coming and they, they knew he was the, he was going to be the Messiah and the King and John the Baptist said he was coming. But they hadn't heard that he actually came. And, or they hadn't heard that he was crucified. That he had died. That he had been raised from the dead. That he had ascended. And so they hadn't done Christian baptism yet because they didn't even know that the Christ event, if you will, had happened yet. And so that's what people mean when they say they're stuck in a redemptive historical time warp. The content of their faith hadn't caught up with history yet. There's more information that's really important to be a Christian. And to be a Christian, you don't just do the John the Baptist baptism. You have Christian baptism, and those people needed to experience that. It probably is not the best translation. I don't want to be nitpicky, um, but others would, would point this out. Probably not the best translation in verse 2 where it says, um, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, only because the Old Testament talks about the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist talked about the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 3, verse 16 um, talked about this very thing. So uh, they, they hadn't heard more along the lines that, that the Acts 2 event had happened, that the, all this time stuff had happened yet, uh, and that the Spirit uniquely came to those who trusted in Christ, like in Acts chapter 2. So that's probably what's going on there. John's the forerunner. They believed everything they needed to believe, but now that more historical happenings have happened, they should fill in the blanks. And that's what happens here. That's why I call them tweeners, right? They're stuck in between. Um, it's kind of an interesting reality, but they didn't stay tweeners. They speak in tongues. That's important. Uh, it's important because that means these folks are like those in Acts chapter 2, right? When, when all this first happened, and this unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened, authenticating, and people speaking known languages that known languages that they didn't know. It was a unifying event. We can communicate with people effectively that we couldn't communicate with before. There's a unifying event that happens when the gospel happens, if you will. And so then we saw in the book of Acts, we saw when the Gentiles first believed, oh, excuse me, when the Samaritans first believed, they spoke in tongues because they're like those in Acts 2, even though they're Samaritans. 
And then when the Gentiles got converted and now the gospel comes to them, we've seen in the book of Acts, they spoke in tongues because you know what? They're not second-class Christians. They're just like those in Acts chapter 2. And now here we have the tweeners coming to believe. Uh, and they're also just like those in Acts 2. There's a unifying factor with all of these first century believers. It's authenticating le- the legitimacy of the gospel for each of these groups. And I think it's probably the last time we see tongue speaking in the book of Acts because we've covered every kind of person. And Jesus is the savior of all different kinds of people. And so we won't see it anymore um, beyond this. So I think we should keep moving. Okay, more more gospel progress. In verse 8 it says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And this is same story next chapter is what this is because this is what the apostle Paul does. So in Ephesus, he's going to go into the synagogue and what he's going to do, he's going to reason with them, pointing out that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one that fulfills the Old Testament. He's the one you're looking for. He meets all of the specifications. You should trust in Jesus of Nazareth. That's what he's saying to them, reasoning with them. I, I hope you notice though, it doesn't say gospel. It doesn't say Jesus is the Christ, which is, has been the pattern. It says the kingdom of God. But really, it's the same thing. He didn't shift his message. It's the same thing. Because if you preach the kingdom of God, the way it should be preached, you're preaching the truth about the king, which is preaching the truth about the Christ, because that means king. You're preaching the truth about the Messiah. And so they're used interchangeably. And I think we need to remember that as Christians. If he's preaching the good news of salvation, if he's preaching the good news about Jesus is the Christ, or if he's preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, he's preaching the same thing. Because when you come to trust in Jesus as your Savior, you're trusting in him as the Christ, as the King, and a good King, the perfect King, the King of Kings, will protect you, will provide for you, will take care of you, won't won't do things selfishly to, to... manipulate you, you're all good, in other words, okay? If the king is for you, that means you're in his kingdom and you'll be protected, you'll be delivered, you'll be saved, in other words, from enemies. And so it, it's it's all of the things, <laughs> to speak lazily. <laughs> and it also means you're a citizen of the kingdom. If you belong to the king by faith, the Messiah, the Christ, then you're a member of his kingdom. And so he speaks in these terms. And ever so quickly, if you will, because I want to make sure we're all on board. This is why even later the Apostle Paul will say things like in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you're in Christ, if you're in Messiah, you're united to Messiah, you're, you're united to the King, you're a new creation. That's kingdom talk. You're, you're part of the kingdom. You're, you're a citizen of the kingdom. You're a new creation. Old things pass, new things have come. And in one sense, we say that's not true. Because we've not experienced that yet. We're still waiting for the new Jerusalem that will last forever. We're waiting for that to come. The Bible speaks in those terms. But if you're united to the king by faith, you're a citizen of that kingdom. It's as good as done. This is good news. That's why the the Christian gospel is good news for you now. But it's also good news later. It's good news forever. And sometimes we're too short-sighted. No, you can preach salvation in Christ. You can preach 
kingdom of Christ. You can preach all of these things, and they're just overlapping, talking about the same goodness that is found in him. So he's using it interchangeably. I hope that helps you. Why is this true? It's, be, it's because if, you, if you're trusting in Christ, then his perfect life is on your behalf. His perfect death is on your behalf. His perfect resurrection is on your behalf. All these good gifts come to you by faith in him. Okay, let's keep moving. Verse 9. But when some became stubborn, same thing again. Here we go again, right? But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, what a great way to summarize Christians. The way. What a great way to summarize Christians because we know Jesus said, I am the way, right? The way to eternal life, the way to forgiveness, the way to the new Jerusalem, right? The way to everlasting life, the way to anything you would ever need, ultimately, right? Because Jesus says, I am the way, John 14, 6. What a great way to summarize what Christians are. They're, they're the way, the way to heaven, the way to forgiveness, the way to reconciliation. We don't use it anymore because why do cults steal all the good words? Why do they steal all the labels? The way international is a cult. So if you're, if you're going to start a church, don't call it the way because it'll be really confusing and then you'll have to change it. So we don't use it anymore. It's bad. What a bummer. Okay, speaking evil of the way. But in the first century, there wasn't a cult named that, okay? Uh, it, it, the Christians, they're speaking evil of the Christians, the, those who have the way to heaven through Messiah. Before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So I hope you're noticing the pattern. Don't get bored of the pattern because it's still interesting. We still have interesting details, but it's proclaim the good news and people receive it and they're so glad because they need forgiveness. And yet some people, as they're listening, they, what did he say? They're stubborn and they reject. And I like what Sinclair Ferguson says about this. He says, not everything in the book of Acts keeps happening. It's unique. But here's one thing that does keep happening in the life of the church. We proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ. And some people are refreshed by it and love it. And it's wonderful. Tell us more. And others, after they hear it for, for a while, just become stubborn. And it's not such good news to them. And they don't want to hear it anymore. And he said, you know what? That's the life of the church. Sinclair calls it a rhythm. It's a certain rhythm that will probably never go away until Christ returns. But the church keeps doing this kind of thing again and again. And we see the pattern, the rhythm in the book of Acts. The hall of Tyrannus. So he's probably moving to rented space. Some texts actually add the words from the fifth hour until the tenth. So from 11 to 4. Siesta time. Low rental rates. Uh, when, at least in the summertime, it's really, really hot and people don't want to be out uh, listening to things. They want to be inside or doing something else. And so cheap rates, but the Apostle Paul's willing to be out there when it's hot. And so for, what is it? Is that five hours? So there he, there he is in a rented space, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, preaching, not the synagogue anymore. Now, hopefully Tyrannus's parents didn't name him Tyrannus. Right? Think Tyrannosaurus Rex. Tyrant. Right? Despot. 
Now, maybe he had parents like that, but more than likely, we're guessing here, it's because his students named him that. That's his lecture hall. So, and he's renting it out when he's not using it, but he's known as a tyrant. Harsh, right? Really letting them have it in his instruction according to what he wants to teach philosophically. And I love the irony, if that's the case, that the Apostle Paul is there for five hours in the day at the lecture hall of Tyrannus, preaching good news of salvation in Christ. You go to the tyrant's hall to hear good news of salvation in Christ. I love it. I love it. Verse 10 says, this continued for two years. So daily five hours a day for two years this goes on. What's not to love about that? What's not to love even about the commitment to making sure we're going to make sure you understand the good news of Christ and the kingdom of Christ? And I mean, this is more hours if you add them up than some seminary graduates have in, in instruction. So you got to admire the commitment to that for sure. And notice it's, it's going to make the gospel message radiate. Verse 10 goes on to say, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. What, what a great impact, right? He's going to be committed to the five hour a day thing daily for a couple of years. And so now what's going to happen? You're going to hear it and other people are going to hear it and other people are going to hear it. And then they're going to go home and they're going to go talk to their friends and to their enemies and their frenemies and their relatives. And before you know it, the gospel's taking hold, a significant hold throughout the whole region. This is wonderful. This is great. We, we were encouraged by this. And then extraordinary miracles, which is a redundancy. Notice verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles. Notice the double emphasis. Miracles by nature are extraordinary. Right? Miracles aren't everyday occurrences. We're not talking about God's providential workings through the world. That's true. But miracles are extraordinary. And so here we have extraordinary extraordinaries. We have miraculous miracles. Well... That's interesting. By the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs. I think if my memory serves me, it's a word for sweat. So not like a handkerchief like the, for fancy. My wife thinks that that's overkill to have the colors like that. But I kind of like it. I'm going to leave it up there. So not this kind. The, the kind that a farmer would use because they're, it's not for decorations to wipe the sweat. So Paul's a tent maker. We learned that. So that even handkerchiefs that he would have used when he's sweating, making tents, and aprons that he would have worn when he was making tents that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. When we look at the book of Acts, we look at the gospel accounts, the miracles authenticate. They authenticate Jesus' ministry, that he wasn't just saying great things. He did great things. His apostles are authenticated by doing the same kinds of things. And that's definitely what's happening here. As a quick aside, because some of you are just joining us, even in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, miracles are not the norm. They're not the norm. They're unique happenings. Some people who are smarter than I am have made the observation that there are three distinct special periods, the time of Moses, the time of Elijah, and the time of Jesus and his apostles. 
where you see the extraordinary is somewhat ordinary. Authenticating unique things. Authenticating unique things. Authenticating unique things. Uh, the Apostle Paul's ministry is being further authenticated in this region. And now we're going to move on and we're going to see something of the naked itinerant exorcists. How about that? 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. So these are not traveling evangelists. They're traveling exorcists. They've seen the extraordinary miracles. And, And so notice what happens. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the, the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. We can do this too. Right? We, we can do this too. Then it says in verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So imagine that as a family business. The seven sons of Sceva, not Sceva and sons painting, not Sceva and sons landscaping, Sceva and sons exorcists. Imagine that van driving by you on your way home on Dodge Street. I once heard Al Mohler preach on this text, and he said, it's the Jewish exorcist firm of Skiva, 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 and Skiva. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> okay, verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. And I made a little note there. Even the demons authenticate the legitimacy of the apostle Paul or Paul's ministry as a legitimate apostle. But who are you? (laughs) And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Why naked? Why not? I guess. I mean, they're, they're humiliated. And this leads to good. Bad actors and demons leads to good. And God is providential and God works. It says in verse 17, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was magnified. You know what? You know who's great in all of this? It's not the demons and it's not the people who try to use the name of Jesus to maybe make a buck or maybe to become more famous or more influential. No, all of that, that got snuffed out. You know what? We've learned from all of this in this account. We've learned that Jesus is great. Jesus is to be extolled. Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior. The, the good one has good news. And that's actually the takeaway here. And not about anything or anyone else. And isn't it interesting how God used that occurrence to bring that conclusion to people's minds? Yes, indeed, God is causing all things to work together for good. Let's keep going. Verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers synonymous for Christians, came confessing and indulging their practices. They're they're coming clean. Believers have seen this sort of thing happen and it makes them not want to harbor their secret sins. This is really good. How How about verse 19? And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
I've seen how great Christ is. I thought he was great before because I'm a Christian. I'm a believer, but I've seen how great he is maybe in other ways. And I've seen how bad it is to sin and harbor sin and entertain sinful practices that would dishonor him. And so here you have a, a whole lot of believers, if it's this much value, saying, I have some secret sins that I would like to confess and I would like to be done with now. It will come at great cost to me. That's how serious I am about it. It's really, really good to see this. It's also really good to see it because it also helps us figure out our our theology a little bit more because it does teach us and remind us that they weren't perfect upon the point of believing. Let me put it another way. It shows us that they didn't have to be perfect to become Christians. Right? And then they became Christians and they still weren't perfect. They were perfect in God's eyes because of Christ. That's the whole point. But now there's more maturity as believers and they want to get rid of sin because sin is bad. But notice, it's already into their Christian experience. More maturity is happening. And then wonderfully, probably the best part that does capture the whole, the whole chapter, and it is verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Look what the gospel does. Look what the gospel does. It prevails. Even through opposition. It prevails. It's unstoppable. He uses a military metaphor for it, but we're not talking about uh, militaristically, hard to say. It's not by force. It's by proclamation. But it actually does conquer. It actually does find victory. And it's unstoppable. No matter what happens. It's good for us to see this. It, that's what I put at the top of my notes today, all joking aside, what's the sermon about? I really don't know. The prevailing of the good news about salvation in Jesus Christ so that he will be magnified, his people will be encouraged, sinners will repent, and believers will grow spiritually. It will prevail absolutely no matter what. That's a good takeaway from the book of Acts. Okay, we're going to move on to the final section. The final section is in verses 21 to the very end. There's a disturbance that happens. So take a breath. If you need a breath, take another drink of that dopio espresso or whatever it is you're having. 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit. How, how do you do that? I don't know. Maybe it's because he was praying. He's reflecting upon Acts chapter 1 that the gospel needs to go to all of these different places. Uh, regardless of how it happens, he resolved in the spirit. This is, this is what I must do. And I think this is God's will for my life. He resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem once again, saying, after I have been there, I must see Rome. So that's my my passionate agenda. That's what I need to do. That's what I want to do. I want to revisit the churches. I want to get back to Jerusalem, give an update. And then I want to take the gospel to Rome. Verse 22 says, And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. 
Second Corinthians 8 would probably have us to know that he sends them to Macedonia to collect money for the poor Christians who are being persecuted severely in Jerusalem. 23 says, let's keep going. About that time there arose no little disturbance. Kind of an odd way of wording things, right? No little disturbance concerning the way, concerning Christians. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis or Diana as she would be known. Goddess of the hunt, goddess of childbirth, goddess of fertility, among other things, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So there's no little disturbance. Why? Notice Luke words it on purpose because there's no little business. There's money involved, right? To the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Read between the lines, we should make it about religion, but in reality, it's about wealth. Because a lot of times, religion is used for wealth. People say sex sells, so does spirituality. And we see it happening here. It's big business. People, people came from all around the empire. Again, remember, one of the seven wonders of the world. And so what's going to happen when you go there, you know, you can go and see the great shrine and you can go and worship because you want to have a lot of babies or you want to have your family safe and healthy or a better whatever kind of life you want to have. I'll keep it PG. You really want to go there and worship her. But you know what? You can take her with you. Right? Shrines, shrines. Get your Artemis keychains, two for $10. Artemis keychain, right? It's a, it's a whole business. Just like when you go and visit somewhere now. And if you, in, not on a religious level, you, what happens? You go to the Eiffel Tower and you got to bring home some trinket for somebody to try to explain to them that you love them. So you buy an Eiffel Tower keychain. As if I would like an Eiffel Tower. Never mind. <laughs> Just take a little bit of it home with you. But in this case, it's, it's so you can have your own little shrine at home. Might not be as good as the real thing, but you can now have your shrine at home. You can worship at home and it might bring you better luck or more happiness or a better sex life or whatever it might be. And so it's big business. Vendors is what these guys are. Today we just go to nationalshrineshops.com. I went there yesterday. And the map popped up when I went to national, what was it again? Nationalshrineshops.com. Uh, and the map showed me that it's right by the Coca-Cola bottling company and the burrito taco shop. So it just proves how important it is, I guess. So while you're buying your shrine, make sure you get a taco at the burrito taco shop and pick up a Coke also. And I don't know why I said that stuff, but it just se- seemed to cheapen the whole thing. You go... Just like I can go, you know, get a taco, I can go buy a shrine to worship because it's going to make God happy. We laugh and say it's ridiculous, but people are enslaved to these things. And they were enslaved then, and the gospel sets people free from religious slavery. Remember what Jesus said so poignantly and so profoundly. Never forget when he said, come to me and I will give you what? Rest. You who are heavy laden, burdened. Oh, I got to say another something to another God or goddess or saint or anything. (sighs) Or it won't measure up. It won't be good enough. And I got to do it for my family. And I have to do it for other people. 
you turn to Christ and you rest in Christ because in Christ you have the new creation. And so the Apostle Paul is going to be attacked for preaching Christ because these people don't like him. But in reality, he's giving people freedom because he's preaching Christ to them where people find it, find rest. We better keep moving. Oh, I did find people who are Artemis worshipers today too, but I'm not going to, I'm going to spare you of that. Probably not exactly the same as it used to be, but okay. Demetrius goes on verse 26 and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, right? This Paul, this Paul is bad for business saying that God's made with hands are not God's. What a great saying, Right? We take a lot of Bible verses out of context and make plaques and they're kind of silly. This would be a good one though. 27, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. This Paul guy, if we can just embellish a little bit, I mean, he's hating on the Apostle Paul, so let's just kind of embellish it for effect. This Paul guy, who will later come to be known as the Apostle of Love, isn't very loving. He's not very loving toward Artemis. He's not very loving toward us. And he's not very loving to the whole world, because they're even saying the whole world worships Artemis. And we're going to say... He's being honest. They're attacking him. But in reality, he's giving them hope and hope and freedom through Christ. The gospel sets people free from all of this. It will destroy their business. But for good, ultimately. How about verse 28? We better roll things up here. When they heard this, they were enraged. Somebody said, it's a toxic blend of religious devotion, local patriotism, and economic fear. They're enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of, of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater. Theater holds somewhere between twenty and 25,000 people, so it's a big venue. Dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companion in travel. Let's hold them accountable. Then it says in verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asia arcs, hard to say. Rulers of Asia in charge of the community's political and religious welfare. They, they, they're going to stop him too. The Asia arcs who were friends of his, very likely unbelievers, but they've become friends, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. As a footnote, the word assembly there is the word ekklesia in the Greek text, translated typically what? Church. So just because the Bible says church doesn't mean church, because this is not church, though some churches might act like this. <laughs> right? This is their Artemis church. <laughs> this is their Artemis assembly, and it's up to no good against the actual assembly, the actual church. 33 says, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, he's a Jewish leader in the community, high Jewish population there too, not just pagan, pagan population. So, and Alexander motioning with his hand. 
wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Leader in the community, yes. Maybe otherwise respectfully, yes. But you know what? Those Christians are a lot like you, monotheists. You're not a big fan of Artemis either. So why in the world would we want to listen to you? So we have a little anti-Semitism going on here aimed at this individual wanting to bring some some sanctified sense to the whole thing. Then 35 says, and when the town clerk, so an official acknowledged by Rome, we're going to read between the lines based on what he's about to say. So the town clerk, remember they're under Roman control, right? So they're accountable to Rome ultimately had quieted the crowd. He said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? He expects unanimous agreement that people all believe this because their parents told them that and their parents told them that. So they know it's true, just like Santa Claus. Um, 36, but he's expecting them to all agree is the point. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. What's happening? You better tone it down and calm down. You guys already know what you believe and you already, you know that it's true, but you better tone things down because otherwise we're going to be in scrutiny mode. We're going to be scrutinized by Rome and we don't want that. We like our freedoms. We don't want there to be an unsettling here. Otherwise, they're going to turn the screws. That's for sure what's happening. I say that based upon what we'll keep reading. Let's keep going. Or or verse 37. Uh, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now, that's just not true. (laughs) The end of 37, that's, that's not true. But it's what he says. And maybe it's what he thinks. Okay. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a... I'll put my finger there for a second. Does the Bible contain lies? Yeah, there's one. It records lies. It's not promoting lies. How about that? Just want to make sure you can do Bible trivia better next time. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. There's a right way to do this and a wrong way to do this is what he's arguing. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the church, the ecclesia, the Artemis assembly. So what can we learn from this? At least this last part. There are two big takeaways. I'm sure there are more of them. But one big takeaway from this last part that I think is salient, important, significant. And that is the gospel here is protected by Rome. That, that's God's strange providence, right? We, we better not carry this out any further. We better not put an end to all of this right here like you guys want to do because otherwise we're going to be in trouble with Rome. 
And it's not like Rome is Christian. So God's strange and intriguing providence. Isn't it interesting when the gospel is protected by Rome? Might have to be the sermon title after all. Fear of Rome anyway. (laughs) Another good takeaway from this is... It's also being protected. The gospel is being protected by an unbeliever who's using bad reasoning. There's an unbeliever who I said is lying or maybe they just, they don't understand enough. And it's a bad argument, but you know what? It preserves the gospel in this location for now, according to God's providence. It's good to see that God is working. Timothy will in time pastor in Ephesus, that great city, and have effective gospel preaching, gospel protecting ministry. We learn about it in 1 Timothy and then in 2 Timothy. From a human perspective, from a human perspective, that never would have happened. It seems if this church, this assembly would have had their way. God is working even if we think it odd the way he's working. But the church just keeps preaching. No matter what we're going to do this, no matter what we're going to do this, no matter what we're going to do this, some like it, some don't like it, but God is sovereign and he's working and we certainly see that here. One wise old pastor who's in heaven now made one more observation that I'll share with you. Paul did not arouse the opposition of the silversmiths by picketing the temple of Diana or staging anti-idolatry rallies. Instead, he preached Christ. Fascinatingly enough. Father, thank you so much for this really wild and amazing kind of chapter with so many things happening. And we're thankful to be able to take away that the gospel prevails even if we don't see how, even if we don't see it in our own personal lifetimes, uh, through all kinds of strange circumstances, may it be something that helps us here today to be all the more settled in proclaiming the good news of salvation in Christ. Because we know that it does set people free. And we know that it does, yes, cause trouble, but ultimately... It brings the only thing that can bring eternal and lasting hope that can help us to even live today for what's right and what is good and what is beautiful. Thank you so much for those who've gone before us, whether it be Paul and Timothy and others, Priscilla and Aquila, but also even closer generations to us. We're thankful that people have prayed for us and that people have defended and promoted the truth so that we might share in it ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.